0: This is UCD Business Impact, a podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. And each week we'll be joined by world-renowned academics from across the College of Business, as well as industry leaders to discuss the most compelling business issues facing Ireland and the world. Our experts each week will offer insight, spark curiosity and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist lecture at New City College of Business. Now you're very welcome along to edition number 35 of Business Impact podcast and it's a very strange time of the year because I'm looking at snowflakes outside the window and nothing unusual dramatically in Ireland about snow in February but we were hoping for a bit of a break from our COVID uh, blues with some better weather but unfortunately it doesn't look like we're going to be granted that concession by the elements but we are in a very interesting period of the year. We're actually approaching first anniversary of the first case in Ireland of COVID-19. I probably, arguably, um, should be sitting in the UCD campus recording this, but I'm actually, almost a year later from when we started rolling out these podcasts, I'm still sitting at my laptop at the same desk in my study. So here we are, but it has been a fascinating series and as we grapple with this crisis, we're looking at how it plays out um, across the world regionally. We're sifting through myriad of implications and one of those is definitely how it has panned out regionally and economically. It has a sort of a dark fascination because I suppose for us in the West there is obviously disease, there's very congested and at times overrun hospitals and of course there are a whole raft of government restrictions. But with the rollout of the vaccines you know the Western world is more likely to get on top of this disease to control it far quicker than countries in what we used to call the developing world a phrase that in itself is is very much passe nowadays and in those regions vaccines may not be available for many years and possibly in a worst case in or possibly even for a decade so what can be done to help developing countries to grow and rebound economically in the meantime can social entrepreneurship impact investing microfinance initiatives often talked up as very much crucial to eliminating poverty by their advocates can they be those solutions in these very interesting years ahead now my guest is going to help us today answer some of those questions he is an investor a board director a social entrepreneur an impact investor deal maker and yes a yoga teacher she is Chital Meta Walsh. She's based in Canada and she's president of Shanti Life, one of the world's most innovative microfinance and inclusion organizations, which is based in India. She's also a former director of venture capital relations at Microsoft, and she spent over 18 years working with not-for-profit venture capitalists and investment banks including spent time working with the UK and UAE governments and has worked with hundreds of entrepreneurs. And of course, because she's on this podcast, she also has very, very impressive Irish connections and credentials, which we'll talk about in a second. But first of all, you're very welcome to our podcast, Business Impact. Sheetal Mehta-Walsh, hello.
1: Hello, Emmett. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you very much for coming on. Um, it's been an amazing few weeks to start of the year so much to talk to as i said in the introduction so much to sift through but let's go down to the the personal level for a start because i know like everyone canada has been hit hard by the covid pandemic how, how have you been uh, weathering the last few months and year from where you are based in, in vancouver
1: yes emmett it's been a very difficult time for most and i must say i am so blessed and very lucky in the fact that uh, i have been uh, safe my family has been safe and we are in an ecosystem that you know allows us to to pretty much work from home. So we're very very lucky to be in a situation where we don't have to go out to work and and jeopardize our safety or that of others. Um, we know so many stories of close family and friends around the world who have suffered. And of course, watching the news, it's it's uh, it's terribly tragic to what regarding what has happened to so many people. Um, however, Emmett, there's there's a little bit of a you know, nimble, positive side to how it people have work, come to, to work together. And while there's nothing positive about COVID at all, in the sense that it's, it's really been detrimental to the health of many, many people, we as entrepreneurs and business people need to be nimble and resilient. And I think... No time uh, have I had to be more resilient than I am now. I spend uh, 90% of my time flying around the world for the work that I do, working in the impact investing space and with entrepreneurs. And through COVID, I have been lucky to work from my very safe home in Vancouver uh, via computer. And it's been a blessing to reconnect with people that probably I would not have connected with had we not been under lockdown.
0: Now, Chital, you're you're a very fascinating career that you have. You've mentioned it briefly. We'll get into all the different layers and and facets of it in a second, but of course, um, your name is intriguing. I see the name Walsh inserted in there as a surname, so I can't let you away without telling us a little bit about your Irish connections before before we kick on and get into the meat of this uh, of this conversation.
1: Absolutely, Emmet. So my Irish connections go way way back. Um, I actually started the venture capital strategy for. Bill Gates within Microsoft uh, in the US, and then I brought that business to AMIA. And incidentally, the early, early VCs that I partnered with were in Dublin. So as early as uh, 2003, I was spending the majority of my time in Dublin meeting fantastic VCs who I'm still in touch with, uh, you know, the Brian Caulfields of the world and very inspiring people. Fell in love with Ireland, of course, as anyone would. And um, then I was very, very blessed and lucky to meet the man of my dreams from Wexford Wexford and he's uh, Paul Walsh. He's also an entrepreneur and we we met in uh, London and had a whirlwind romance and got married in Vegas and now here we are uh, with a beautiful half Irish and half Indian daughter. And uh, I feel very connected to the Irish community also from a business perspective, in that I'm on the advisory board of UCD and Shanti Life, our not for profit social enterprise, uh, is actually uh, highly supported by the entrepreneur community in Dublin and in, across Ireland. So I have many, many affiliations to Ireland is actually one of my second homes. And I really feel grateful to be part of this community that is just super resilient, has been for centuries and will continue to be and also very close uh, culturally to my own Indian culture. So I'm very grateful for those connections
0: okay well listen we might come back to those in a few minutes they they are you have had a fascinating life um, obviously with covid your your travel which is such a big part of the industry you're in has been curbed very much and we'll talk about that too in a second but i want to talk a little bit about what the whole way that the developing world can rebound. And I I, I think that's a loaded term in itself, but we, we'll, we'll decode that as we move along. Um, I mean, there's going to be such incredible scarring of the economy in so many parts of the world after this is over. There, we can already see evidence of that. And there are some communities that are more vulnerable than others. They don't have the financial infrastructure that, you know, that the pipework that a lot of the European and North American countries have. Let's tell, talk a little bit about your Shanty Life project because it really is about making finance available to people who were were never really part of the formal banking system before. Can, can you just sort of go back to when you started the project and how big and how sort of widespread in India it has now grown?
1: Absolutely, Amit. So. My husband and I started Shanti Life in 2009, and we were both very frustrated because we'd both worked for the for-profit world for many, many years. And I myself had spent 20 years working with various charities all across the world. There's a frustration around this assumption that you, you, know, you can't make money and do well and give back, and a frustration about existing charities that have a lack of sustainability and a confusion around how to give effectively. Uh, We all know the phrase, you know, teach a man to fish. And so when we set up Shanti Life, the mission and intent was not to provide handouts, but to provide financial literacy, access to bank accounts, mentoring, and really access to capital that smart capital, like any entrepreneur would like smart capital. We We know all money has some conditions attached. And so we wanted to make sure we created some sort of a social impact platform, which would allow poor entrepreneurs or vulnerable unbankable people to actually get a seat at the table and enjoy some sort of an infrastructure, which they otherwise wouldn't have had. And in that capacity, Shanti Life is not a handout operation. It is actually based on providing financial literacy training to those who are unbankable and bring them to a level that they can be bankable. So our model is very simple. We provide very low interest micro finance loans to those who have signed up and those who are guaranteed by their peers in certain villages and communities across rural India. And upon receiving the loans. They conduct their businesses. Many of them have no access to sanitation, which inhibits productivity. So we seek to really provide them basics that help them become equipped to run their businesses. When they pay back their loan, the funds get recycled. So it's a pay it forward model. We've all seen that beautiful film about paying it forward in terms of good acts. Their loan repayment gets paid to their next community member, and so on, and so on. So the entire village, over time, is affected positively through local role models and through accessing finance and mentorship through the Shanti Life platform.
0: And so, Tal, can you give us some idea of of the kind of people that are receiving the loans, their life, and their hopes, dreams, and ambitions when they get the money? What are they trying to do with this finance that you're providing?
1: Absolutely. So first and foremost, Emmet, we we were working with women and. When we went to India to to engage locally and really get get grassroots, our focus was we want to work with entrepreneurs, and this is where you know my husband Paul came in quite quite interestingly. He said as we talked to the women who had travelled four hours to visit us and had told their husbands you know that they were going to a fair because they weren't probably it would have been frowned upon to say that they were going to speak to some. Some, some people who've come to visit to provide finance. So it was quite an important trust building exercise for everyone at the table. And when they told us what their needs were, Paul actually went off and returned and he said, right, here's your first loan and it's not for a business. It's actually for what you've just explained as your main trouble in life. And that is lack of access to sanitation. And so in many, many rural areas in India, there is a lack of sanitation mainly for women, which means they have to only go to defecate in the night five miles away from their home where no one's going to see them. Unfortunately, they get raped, they get lost, many go missing, some get bitten by snakes. And while it sounds very um, far-fetched from our lives and how we live, it actually becomes a reality for the economy because it's a very, very, very large population that suffers from lack of sanitation. By accessing the loans and being able to improve their health and their productivity, their second loans are for small businesses. And the other types of people could include farmers, Emmett. So we are doing a lot of work with farmers who are able to now leverage smartphones and technology to be able to understand, you know, what the crop prices are at any given time and how they can sell their crops as well as very poor artisans who have no way to get their goods to be sold across the world, so through Shanti Life, we're providing an online platform for that as well. So these are basically vulnerable people who really just need a leg up to get somewhere to to be able to get attention um, and to be able to get access to resources, which we actually take for granted so often, but realize now how important those resources are.
0: Vital, in terms of what was there before you, the project came along, or if there was anything there, was there any kind of unofficial? Money lenders of any description, or have Indian banks ever looked to getting involved in rural India at all, or was it just a completely and utterly clean slate before your project um, kind of was what was brought into being?
1: Excellent question. So there, microfinance and uh, unfortunately, loan sharks have been available uh, and predominantly uh, very aggressive in these rural parts of India. In 2016, we heard about the horrible incident of. Um, the young women who weren't able to pay back their loans and uh, they were actually, they had committed suicide because they weren't able to meet the needs uh, of the, in the conditions of the loan sharks. Uh, when we talk about conditions and and ridiculous systems in place, you know, these, this informal loan sharking included interest rate of, of 80%. Whoa. And quite frankly, none of us are going to pay that, and of no. course, that's going to lead to mental illness and anxiety and fear and exclusion from the community, etc. So, yes, when Shanti Life entered the Indian community, what we realized is there was microfinance; it wasn't working well. Or at the other extreme, there was absolute uh, handouts. So you you had two extremes. You either had handouts, which wasn't valued by these people because they're hardworking entrepreneurs or you had the microfinance, very condition related relationships which caused fear and mistrust. We wanted to come in the middle as entrepreneurs and as business people to bring in our business skills and mindset. How do we create a sustainable community and infrastructure and platform to ensure that these vulnerable entrepreneurs could access resources that they need in a safe, trusting environment so that the knock on effects would also benefit the rest of their community and so on and so on. Interestingly, Shanti Life uh, is the only non Indian microfinance organization that has the foreign uh, contributions regulations status. And what that means, Amit, is that we can actually give money directly to individuals via a bank account or cash we do it via bank accounts to get them in the system but why that is the case is that many charities have been stopped from working in India due to money laundering and other um, questionable activities. So we feel very proud as a as an organisation to have been able to put business skills and systems and processes and tools in place with a social impact, alongside adhering to a really very stringent Indian process and banking system.
0: Yes, yeah, so and in, in research for talking to you today, I was very interested in in the profile of the borrowers. Um, they're they're far more likely to repay their loans than a lot of conventional western customers because they do whatever money they have or or items they have or or kind of wealth of any description that they have they tend to save it and be quite prudent so the research seems to show that it's it's very sustainable and credit losses as as the bankers in this part of the world would say are likely to be very low because people really 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 feel kind of honor bound literally to to repay the loans and as you say pass it on down the line
1: Absolutely, Ahmed. It's a page in the book that we can all learn from. Uh, there's quite a fear about exclusion from the community and saving face and not wanting to um, insult and jeopardize a family's position, even within these tribal communities where you know, some of the people we work with who are not farmers They're uh, they have no land either. In fact, they have no land rights, they own fishing boats. And so where are they going to go? Um, all they have is their boat, they, they would never jeopardize their family standing in the community, or opportunities for others potentially. And uh, we've helped approximately 5,000 uh, individuals, and then obviously the knock on effects to the families and communities that are involved there. But in this instance, we have had 99% repayments, and very timely. And Emmett, what's really shocking about this to me as well is that during COVID, we relaxed the repayments and interest rates, thinking that many of these poor, uh, vulnerable people have been displaced and um, in unfortunate situations due to COVID with lockdown, et cetera. And yet, though we put a hold on repayments for several months, 99% of the people have paid back their loans and are cracking on now. And they're very proud of themselves during COVID to be able to repay their loans and Several have taken further loans only last week because they're in a position to scale their businesses. So we're very proud of that accomplishment and learning from them.
0: And you talk about scaling their business. I'd be very curious to know, how, how far can microfinance in India and you know, arguably elsewhere go? I mean, Bill Gates, who you mentioned in the introduction, is associated with this area as well. I mean, do do you what's the potential of this in terms of the economic development long-term, like over decades, just from being involved so intimately in the project yourself, like there's obviously what you do, but there's there are others, as you mentioned as well. What's the potential of this to, to transform a country like India, do you think, long-term?
1: So, Amit, India has a very interesting scenario because there's a lot of money in India, a lot of money. And then there's also extreme poverty. Um, In the case of, of microfinance and in the case of empowering anybody and enabling them to get a seat at the table the most important impact that I see which will affect economic activity is basic education. And what that means is not only having a woman being able to have a bank account and sign a check and learn about financial literacy, but having her husband understand and agree from an educational perspective that it's okay for his wife to be the breadwinner or to have that loan. So when we talk about economic development, I think it starts with education and mindset keeping in mind many of these people don't send their children to schools, they're working in the farms or working on small family businesses. So changing the mindset that it's all right to take a loan, that it's not a bad thing, and that it is okay for a woman to be at the leadership uh, side of the business is okay. Uh, We had an interesting incident a few months ago where a woman did Take a loan from Shanti Life. She was able to purchase a rickshaw and put her husband to work. So he's actually now got her as his boss, which would never have happened Interesting. unless, <laughs> yes, unless we had open education and communication about that. So that's at a very micro level. When we talk at a at a macro level and in terms of other existing microfinance opportunities and lending systems in place, I think it's really, really important for these people not only to have access to finance. But again, I take it back to education. If one doesn't know how to save and reinvest into their business and save it for schooling and for medication and other healthcare costs, et cetera, this isn't going to be sustainable. So I think from a, from a, a nation perspective, the education side is very important. And also, and unfortunately, politics sometimes plays a role in this. Uh, at the moment, there's a big issue with the the farmers in India and the government really supporting the large farmers versus the smaller farmers who have unfortunately uh, not an opportunity to protect themselves and their sales of their crops and their their products that they sell so so there definitely needs to be an internal understanding of how to ensure that all farmers and all entrepreneurs at every level are protected and elevated and empowered to get a seat at the table. But coming in from Ireland and Canada and, and all of our team and wherever we're based, we really feel that it's an opportunity to give back and to do so in a sustainable way, because really, these, these communities and and villages, they won't need us. And it's becoming the case now that many of these communities don't need us anymore because their funds are just recycling amongst themselves. And that for me is a huge impact, not only for small villages, but globally, and sorry, internationally and globally, because it changes the mindset of how people, rather than being victims, can be empowered to run their own businesses.
0: And in terms of your own sort of personal ambitions for the project, you know, what do you see in the, like, it's a, it's very innovative. It's, as you said yourself, it's dealing with a huge amount of people as you, as you tend to get in And, you know, everything's done at scale. I mean, where do you see it in five or 10 years or is there a particular place you want to get to, or is it just let it, let it turn over itself and just let it take its own uh, kind of momentum alone?
1: So we would really like to see, um, and I'm going to liken it to the venture capital world in, in, and what we do with entrepreneurs, just like an entrepreneur is able to exit and pay out their VCs and and say, well, we've sold our products now and we're no longer dependent and reliant on these investors. I would similarly like to see that the communities we've worked with across India are able to say, we no longer need Shanti Life. We're graduates and we're running our own business and we're running our own infrastructure, providing access to capital for other people and creating jobs. For me, that would be really impactful as well as increasing our reach. Our model is is an interesting one because, as I said, it's in between the, the for-profit versus the not-for-profit and keeping in mind we don't pocket any of the um, interest that comes back to us. That all gets recycled. But from the perspective that we could use this model, the Shanti Life model outside of India and in other places for vulnerable people, that would actually be a wonderful tool that I would like to have to provide to people globally.
0: In terms of your own career, uh, it's been fascinating. You know, I have to do the intro. It took me a few minutes of the script because uh, you've had so many different roles across a number of different areas. There is a common thread, obviously, to them. But impact investing is something that's just growing all the time. There's huge interest in it, And um, ESG uh, is another area that people take, uh, take a close interest in. I mean, do you enjoy more the kind of project that you mentioned in India, or or do you still have um, a passion for what you might call more conventional VC, investing in companies? You've worked for a good few years in Silicon Valley, so is it hard for you to straddle such diverse worlds, or or do you feel, look, one plays off the other, or how how do you approach that just in terms of you personally?
1: Oh, great question, Emmett. So I think a lot of, well, all of my work is very much aligned with my values and my integrity. And what I very much care about is, you know, we're not taking anything with us when we leave this world. So what can we leave behind? What can we give back is really at the forefront of my mind. And so the work that I do currently, which is I sit on several boards of tech companies. I've, we've got Luxonic in Saskatchewan, Canada, that's focused on um remote healthcare. We've got Waterhound Futures that I work with out of London. That's about digital water. And I'm also on the board of Medicert, which is an anti phishing company. All of the work that I do is really revolving around how is this technology impacting communities in a positive way and in a safe way for our planet, for communities, for education, for healthcare, for financial payments, etc. So my sort of thesis around my strategy has been around Impact investing. I'm also launching Soho Ventures currently, which is going to be a 50 million pound fund focused on well technology that is going to no doubt impact the world positively. We have no choice now. When you talk about ESG and and social impact, I my wish and my dream, Emmet, is that we no longer call ourselves social impact investors or social entrepreneurs, because in essence. Everything that we do inherently should be thinking about the planet and about communities and about empowering the youth uh, for the future so that the technologies that we create are going to positively impact how we live and how our future generations live. so yes, it is it's it might sound that there's not a thread amongst all of the different hats that I wear, but when I wake up every morning, I don't think it's work because it's actually aligned with my my value of how are we changing the world and giving back in a positive way.
0: Now, now you you mentioned working for Microsoft and you spent five good, good years there and you worked very hard on a number of projects for the company. Uh, is that a very different world from the one you're in now where you're you're in corporate America? You know, it's a hard charging world. We we know that even though it does have a much more wide set of values, Microsoft, and a lot of companies, bottom line, quarterly numbers and getting to them does matter. Was it hard to sort of um, move out of that world into something slightly different or, or, do you, or do you feel you've kind of carried something from your time in Microsoft and kind of benefited from a set of learnings you got with that company?
1: Exactly. I feel that uh, Microsoft had given me a very good platform to understand the ecosystem of entrepreneurship and all the stakeholders involved, which we have Emmet everywhere, right? We have these ecosystems of academics, governments, investors, corporates, and startups. How we bring those all together uh, is really important in any ecosystem in any part of the world, including the villages in India, uh, or including, you know, farmers anywhere in the world. So, For that matter, I I feel that Microsoft gave me a very good platform to learn about engaging with innovation and how that can affect the world. But I was also very lucky working uh, for Bill Gates in the capacity that I had quite a lot of free reign to leverage our corporate social responsibility hat. And in that regard, I attended a UNIFEM gathering in Uganda, a country which is going through elections now and and of course has a lot of turmoil i myself was born in uganda and left in 72 as a refugee to come to canada so i had never ever returned after that refugee experience and in 2003 i did return to uganda where i met the president and we built a telecenter Uh, for some of the farmers. And so Microsoft gave me uh, an opportunity to really fulfill and learn about grassroots opportunities in these various villages. So I, I really appreciate that as a platform for my learning.
0: And you had an incredible time on the VC side. So you're, you're good at picking winning projects. So I presume that's the skill that's transferable. You know, that you, as you say, you get the capital back, but you also then get to recycle it into projects and it creates a kind of a virtuous circle that just keeps going around and round. That's, that's the theory of all venture capital ultimately is that there's an exit and then the money gets plowed into another project. And again, there's an exit and you should always sort of have a, a kind of a link in the, in the chain as you go along. So that there is that thread in there, isn't there? in what you're talking about.
1: 100% absolutely. I, the The venture capital work that I'm embarking on now is very, very important to me from a for-profit perspective. And what I would find very interesting is the companies that we invest in will be very diverse. And I don't just mean in gender or race, but I mean diverse in experience. So we really care about global entrepreneurs. And we really care about solutions and technologies that will be able to be uh, globally available. With COVID and with everyone working you know, online more so than ever before, we do want to leverage technologies that we can access globally, not just necessarily a technology that's going to work for me in, in, uh, in Soho, London, but something that can work across the board, across the world, uh, and really meet the needs of diverse customers as well.
0: And you're on a number of boards, as you've mentioned, and one of the quandaries of all of this that I don't know if it's something you can shine a light on, but certainly interests me, is that when somebody comes along to invest in a technology company specifically, you know, big tech is, is a word get, that gets thrown around obviously you know companies weren't always big tech they were small tech to start with and as you say they might have had certain sets of values but some of the stories some of the the headlines that surround tech now it seems to be so negative and has become less about innovation but more about kind of market share advertising tracking and um, you know adware you know it it's the whole um 2016 election issue with facebook there there seems to be a lot of very dark headlines around tech does that make your job harder or in a way more interesting because you're trying to make investments in tech but then square those investments with your own values that you've mentioned in the in the podcast today i mean so how how do you see it? does that make has that made your job in some ways challenging but actually more interesting in the last two or three
1: years so yes just just as in the real world i think online and now more than ever before Safety and security and privacy and identity are at the forefront of of what we're doing, Um, whether it's our children learning online, you know, for online education or ourselves doing financial payments or trading cryptocurrencies or you name it. It's definitely more important than ever before. This is why I've invested in MetaSert, the anti-phishing business, because I really see the importance that we need these tools now. We really need them more than before. And it's unfortunate it's only after somebody gets hacked or somebody loses you know their life savings that they think, gosh, I really need to look at this security technology out there. But everyone who is listening, of course, you I hope are protecting yourselves and really ensuring that you have in place systems to make sure your identity is preserved, et cetera. I do see Emmet also more than ever now an opportunity. And so in my work as a as a venture capitalist, I will be looking at deep technology which will secure our infrastructure and our users and our individuals of the, you know, who are using this technology. It's really, really going to be the bloodline for moving forward and from a safety perspective, very, very important.
0: And and do you see kind of um, the big tech companies, they, they, there may be a vulnerability there to competitors that have more of an emphasis on privacy. I'm not saying every tech company has no emphasis, but it's, it's where it positions them or how much they prioritize it. Do you, do you think some of the smaller companies you're working with You know, they they may be very competitive because they have hardwired into them that emphasis on protecting the user as kind of their number
1: one priority. Absolutely. So large companies, of which I've worked for, are great for innovating and doing wonderful rollouts of technology with lots of staff and lots of money and marketing capabilities. But more so, I'm noticing the innovation that, that is coming from grassroots entrepreneurs around the world I really see that as leading the way forward. And we do see a lot of corporations setting up innovation arms to go and identify technology that they can actually invest in and buy. And I see that as a really good opportunity nowadays for many startups and tech companies to get smart funding and position themselves potentially for the Microsofts of the world, uh, either as customers or potential acquirers uh, to really then roll out and scale their businesses globally, and I do think the innovative entrepreneurs need to be elevated because they are the ones who are innovating, and really, hopefully, by and large, they are creating solutions to problems they've seen themselves, rather than you know just pie in the sky ideas. They're, they've actually, unfortunately, been victims of, let's say, online security and, and safety and privacy in that they've created those technologies that are required. So I think there's a place for both, but there's definitely an opportunity to partner with corporations for potential uh, go-to-market strategies globally and potential acquisitions.
0: Well, I, I couldn't let you go before one phrase that really resonated with me because it's so intriguing. This phrase you use, digital water, as one of your investments. Tell me more about that one.
1: Yes. So if you look at the water um, community and you look at water as, as a as a utility and, and a resource that we, we all take for granted and generally use each and every one of us uh, so much of it per day. Uh, I came across Waterhound Futures about a year ago and uh, helped them in their move to the UK from San Francisco. And in that experience, Emmett, I, I was really blown away because there on the one hand was this rock star female founder um, who's global and incredible. And on the other hand, digital water, she used this phrase and I thought, well, what does that mean? So water is not, I don't associate it with technology, but what she's created and what they've come up with, leveraging artificial intelligence and, and machine learning and day accessing data is the ability to understand in any given scenario. And if you think about water, it, it covers mining, oil and gas, um, the water we drink, food and beverage. So it really cuts across all, all verticals. The Waterhound Futures technology is able to monitor and analyze waste water and how and when it should be treated in a cost-efficient way, which is then... Saves money and saves water for the planet and delivers cleaner water to to users. So it's actually quite a fascinating area for me, and I, I really look forward to rolling out their business with them on a global scale because I think it's technology that, like you said, is coming from a grassroots entrepreneur community rather than a large corporation and how they're going to maneuver across the traditional utility companies is going to be really exciting.
0: Well, tell her to give us a call here in in Ireland because every summer we seem to run out of water Ever we're doing uh, due to leaks and other infrastructural problems. So I think there's a a possible business opportunity if she gets around to this particular market. I'm going to have to finish this, what has been a fascinating interview. I'm really interested in the work that you're doing in India, but there's so much more going on. Some of the boards you said, we probably need to give it an hour or two to go through all the interest you have and the difference they're making. And it's, it's impact investing and for those that are listening in, that's investing where somebody is looking for a social impact, not just a financial return from the investment. And the idea is that you can bring both of those things together um, and develop a win-win from there. It's been a great conversation. Uh, hopefully we we'll get to see you back in Ireland soon when COVID gets tampered down somewhat and travel um, reignites, I suppose later in the year when the vaccine rollout program really starts to have an effect we'd like to see you back here again in UCD and thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today.
1: Thank you Emmett thank you so much for having me and stay safe and as soon as COVID is over as I said Ireland is my second home so I'll be I'll be coming straight over to see you.
0: Okay look very much forward to that take take care.
1: Thank you take care.